Welcome to Poems for Company. I'm your host, Brian Dillon. Did you know that if you Google poems to recite at a funeral, a variety of examples of noteworthy poems pop up? Some of these poems try to console those left behind. Psalm 23 certainly fits this category. It provides assurance, to some people of faith at least, that all will be well. Even non-believers in our culture are familiar with this poem. The Lord is my shepherd, I lack for nothing. Even were I to walk through a valley of deepest darkness, I should fear no harm, for you are with me. Other poems that are recited at a funeral highlight admirable features of the deceased and are intended to enhance the moment in which loved ones and friends have gathered. Think, for example, of W. H. Auden's poem, Funeral Blues, sometimes referred to by its opening phrase, Stop All the Clocks. Funeral Blues includes this extravagant stanza of love for the deceased. He was my north, my south, my east and west, my working week and my Sunday rest, my noon, my midnight, my talk, my song. I thought that love would last forever. I was wrong. In contrast to Psalm 23, Auden's funeral blues acknowledges the finality of the dead individual. This is the last line of Auden's poem. For nothing now can ever come to any good. I'm not sure that any of the three poems I'll read today are appropriate for such solemn gatherings, but all three reflect on the loss of a person when loss is final, indisputably final. Perhaps some of these poems speak to feelings you have experienced but could not define quite like these poets do. Are poems and songs useful for facing one's own demise or for dealing with the loss of one close to us? We'll think about that while we listen to these poems. The title of today's episode, Responding to Loss. Many fine poems respond to the loss of another person, and we will hear a couple of these fine poems soon. But I'll start today's episode of Poems for Company with a poem in which the speaker responds to his own terminal illness, the fact of his own death hurtling towards him. The poem I'll read is from Tony Hoagland's volume titled Priest Turned Therapist Treats Fear of God. This volume was published in 2018, just months before Hoagland died. A number of these poems speak to the shrinking distance between the speaker's present and his death. One of these other poems in the volume Priest Turned Therapist Treats Fear of God begins this way. I take the hypodermic out onto the porch and the leaves of the elm tree suddenly get yellower. 
another poem in Hoagland's same volume opens this way. When you are sick for the last time in your life, walking around shaky, frail with your final illness, feeling the space between yourself and other people grow wider and wider. And yet, a third poem opens this way. If I knew I would be dead by this time next year, I believe I would spend the months from now till then writing thank-you notes to strangers and acquaintances. Hoagland's own illness hovers over these poems. That's not quite accurate. His illness doesn't just hover, it shapes the poems, including the one I will read now. This is Tony Hoagland's poem, In the Waiting Room with Leonard Cohen. In the hospital waiting room, seated in my plastic chair, I think about Leonard Cohen and start quietly to cry. I'm glad no one is watching, because I can see the childish indulgence of it all, the displacement of my personal self-pity onto the cadaverous Canadian singer whom one critic called the world's leading producer of songs advocating suicide. Yet it comes from somewhere deep, this sobbing sympathy for Leonard Cohen. And I don't care if it's dishonest, there is nourishment in these wet tears. I sense I'm irrigating my own dirty life with something clean and fresh, like rain from far away. Still, crying is violent and weird and hard. It's like pulling something free from something else that doesn't want to give it up and keeps on pulling back with a wheezing, ripping sound. Outside the window, it's not quite sleeting in the gray morning, and I see umbrellas popping open far below, the sidewalk slowly growing dark and stained with wet as cabs speed through the gloom with headlights on. I'm not doing that well in this waiting room today, but I'm glad that Leonard Cohen is here because I feel like I'm stuck half inside and half out of one of his songs, a place where angels have not been seen in years, where ugliness presents itself with a kind of roguish charm. In the reflection of the window, I see his face, his furrowed mouth, the wet black eyes, and that great curved hatchet of a nose, an expert witness on the death of God, a master at the art of being broken in order to be made. Who would have imagined me in the hospital with Leonard Cohen and still too ignorant to die, still trying to learn a few of these fundamental things before the pallbearers arrive. What grief is good for, what imagination can and cannot do, how to work with this suspicion 
that I am the one responsible for letting the dove out of the coffin. That's Tony Hoagland's poem, In the Waiting Room, with Leonard Cohen. The speaker alone in the hospital waiting room starts quietly to cry. He's self-conscious about his burst of tears and about pretending Leonard Cohen is with him. Imagining the Canadian poet-singer's presence heightens the emotional power of the moment for the speaker. He says, I'm glad that Leonard Cohen is here because I feel like I'm stuck half inside and half out of one of his songs, a place where angels have not been seen in years, where ugliness presents itself with a kind of roguish charm. The speaker seems to be wondering, should his understanding of Cohen's work have prepared him better for his own death? And yet, the presence of Leonard Cohen alerts the speaker to his own inadequacies as he faces the end of his life. He's convinced he's still too ignorant to die. The speaker has not figured out what grief is good for. Implied is the notion that Leonard Cohen would know what grief is good for. I will reread this poem by Tony Hoagland shortly before I close out today's episode. Stay tuned, please. Hoagland responds to the impending loss of his self, his identity. Unfamiliar feelings slam into him. Most poems about loss address what it feels like to be left behind, to miss a loved one you know you will never encounter again. Maxine Cuban's poem, Oblivion, focuses on suicide and the loss the survivors must deal with. Without naming names, she quickly sketches the manner in which various 20th century American writers took their own life. John Berryman, Hart Crane, Sylvia Plath, Anne Sexton, Ernest Hemingway, and others. After describing over half a dozen suicide methods, Cuman shifts to the survivors who deal with the deaths, literally and emotionally. This is Maxine Cuman's poem, Oblivion. The dozen ways they did it. Off a bridge, the back of a boat, pills, head in the oven, or wrapped in her mother's old mink coat in the garage, a brick on the accelerator, the cougar's motor thrumming while she crossed over. What they left behind, the outline of a stalled novel, diaries, their best poems, the note that ends, now will you believe me, offspring of various ages, spouses who cared and weep and yet admit relief now that it's over. How they fester the old details held to the light like a stained glass icon, the shotgun in the mouth, the string from toe to trigger, the tongue, a blue plum forced between his lips 
when he hanged himself in her closet. For us it is never over, who raced to the scene, cut the noose, pulled the bathtub plug on pink water, broke windows, turned off the gas, rode in the ambulance only minutes later to take the body blow of bad news. We are trapped in the plot, every one. Left behind, there is no oblivion. That's Maxine Cuman's poem, Oblivion. It's a four-stanza poem, each stanza seven lines long. The first two stanzas comprise one full sentence each, but then, when Cuman shifts to the survivors, the orderly sentence pattern is upended. With the focus on the survivors, Cuman writes a twelve lines long sentence and then closes the poem with two sentences of just one line each. Cuman offers no consolation for those left behind. The details of the suicide will fester. And the final two sentences declare, we are trapped in the plot, every one. Left behind, there is no oblivion. The poem's title is also the poem's final word. Curiously, while the suicide subjects achieved oblivion, there is no oblivion for those left behind. No way to erase the confusing and disturbing abrupt loss of a spouse, a parent, a friend. I suppose Maxine Cuman could have titled her poem No Oblivion, but her point regarding loss seems more profound when held in reserve until the closing line. Left behind, there is no oblivion. And the poem may gain some of its strength by not naming the writers apparently referred to. More than that, Human was friends with Anne Sexton and probably the last person to see her. They had lunch together the day Sexton took her own life. The poem says of Sexton she was wrapped in her mother's old mink coat in the garage, a brick on the accelerator, the cougar's motor thrumming while she crossed over. Discreet, Cuman does not announce that she personally knows what the survivor endures. Instead, she presents herself as one of so many dealing with incomprehensible loss. The first line of our next poem is a mere four syllables, so many socks. The lines in Kevin Young's poem, Charity, are short, some just three syllables. As the poet indicated in an interview with Terry Gross on Fresh Air, a number of the poems in his volume, Book of Hours, that's H-O-U-R-S, respond to the sudden death of his own father. And that's true of this poem, Charity. In another episode of Poems for Company, titled Dogs and Homer, Homer's Dogs, 
other dogs, I read Kevin Young's poem Bereavement, which considered the hunting dogs left behind when the speaker's father abruptly died. The speaker of charity tends to a more mundane task of sorting through his recently deceased father's clothes. Then he attempts to retrieve clothes that were left with dry cleaners at the time of his father's death. This is Kevin Young's poem, Charity. So many socks. After the pair the undertaker asked for, I picture them black beneath the fold in your open casket, your toes still cold. What else to do? Body bags of old suits, shirts still pressed, long johns, the unworn, unwashed wreckage of your closet. Too many coats to keep, though I will save so many. How can I give away the last of your scent? And still, Father, you have errands, errant dry cleaning to pick up, yellow tags whose ghostly carbon tells a story where to look. One place closed for good, the tag old. One place with none of your clothes, just stares as if no one ever dies, as if you are naked somewhere, and I suppose you are. Nothing here. The last place knows exactly what I mean, brings me shirts hanging like a head, starched collars your beard had worn. One man saying, sorry. Older later, lady in the back saying, how funny you were, how you joked with her weakly. Sorry. And a fellow black man hands your clothes back for free. Don't worry. I've learned death has few kindnesses left. Such is charity, so rare and so rarely free that on the way back to your emptying house I weep, then drive everything swaying straight to goodwill open late, to live on another body and day. That's Kevin Young's poem, Charity. There's just one question in this poem, posed after the speaker says he will save many of his father's coats. How can I give away the last of your scent? I think of the scene in Brokeback Mountain, where the man who survives opens a closet door inside of which hangs a shirt that his now dead lover had worn. The shirt suggests the body of the dead man he loved in their almost secret, passionate, too brief connection. The shirt must carry a lingering scent. And when we watch this scene, we sense a kind of pleasure in the sensory reminder of the lost loved one, an odd sort of pleasure in being reminded yet again of one who is, 
forever gone. The speaker in Kevin Young's poem is treated with kindness, charity, at one dry cleaner's who returns the clothes for free and then provokes his tears. And finally, his own act of charity, driving all the clothes from the dry cleaners to goodwill to live on another body and day, as the closing lines explain. He weeps while driving. So powerful a release brought on by such a simple act. Kevin Young chooses not to dwell on the weeping, does not attempt to analyze it. He says straightforwardly, I weep, in response to the charity he received at the dry cleaners. His speaker is alone when the tears flow. The same is true for the speaker of the first poem I read. Tony Hoagland's speaker is also literally alone when he weeps, but he pauses to justify and investigate his weeping in the poem In the Waiting Room with Leonard Cohen. I'm going to close out this episode by rereading Hoagland's poem. We'll be alert to the lines about weeping. But first I'll note one further curious feature to Hoagland's conversational sounding yet absolutely moving poem. Cohen himself died prior to the publication of this poem on election eve of November 2016, so he never learned that Hillary lost. That's a kind of footnote. What I wonder is, if Hoagland's speaker imagines Cohen's ghost, newly departed from this world, has joined him in the waiting room. The Cohen figure offers no advice, no last gasp of wisdom. The sense is that any insights are available in Cohen's writing, which the speaker apparently values, even though he can't help himself from mocking his dependence on the older poet who spent decades contemplating what Hoagland's speaker only now is forced to face. This again is Tony Hoagland's In the Waiting Room with Leonard Cohen. In the hospital waiting room, seated in my plastic chair, I think about Leonard Cohen and start quietly to cry. I'm glad no one is watching because I can see the childish indulgence of it all, the displacement of my personal self-pity onto the cadaverous Canadian singer whom one critic called the world's leading producer of songs advocating suicide. Yet it comes from somewhere deep, this sobbing sympathy for Leonard Cohen. And I don't care if it's dishonest. There is nourishment in these wet tears. I sense I'm irrigating my own dirty life with something clean and fresh, like rain from far away. Still, crying is violent and weird and hard. It's like pulling something free from something else that doesn't want to give it up and keeps on pulling back with a wheezing, ripping sound. Outside the window, it's not quite sleeting in the gray morning, and I see umbrellas popping open far below. The sidewalks 
slowly growing dark and stained with wet, as cabs speed through the gloom with headlights on. I'm not doing that well in this waiting room today, but I'm glad that Leonard Cohen is here because I feel like I'm stuck half inside and half out of one of his songs, a place where angels have not been seen in years, where ugliness presents itself with a kind of roguish charm. In the reflection of the window, I see his face, his furrowed mouth, the wet black eyes, and that great curved hatchet of a nose, an expert witness on the death of God, a master at the art of being broken in order to be made. Who would have imagined me in the hospital with Leonard Cohen, and still too ignorant to die? still trying to learn a few of these fundamental things before the pallbearers arrive. What grief is good for? What imagination can and cannot do? How to work with this suspicion that I am the one responsible for letting the dove out of the coffin? In his waning days, Hoagland's speaker is trying to learn how to work with this suspicion that I'm the one responsible for letting the dove out of the coffin. Will he respond to the impending loss of his own self without bearing grudges and with the sense of peace when reflecting on the life he's led? May I add a personal point? There are very few poems that upon a first reading leap off the page and grab me by the shoulders and say, wake up, listen to me. Most poems require I read them six or eight times or so before I begin to absorb them. They ask for my patient regard. Perhaps I'm a bit slower on the uptake than you, but none of us should expect that a one-time reading will be completely satisfying. Many poems gain power through our rereading of them. That's true of Tony Hoagland's, Maxine Cumin's, and Kevin Young's poems that I read today. Well, I probably did not manage to cheer you up, but these three poems offer profound and distinct responses to loss that are worth contemplating. You may listen to poems for company whenever it's most convenient. Go online to kmun.org, click on the podcast tab, and then click again on Poems for Company. There you will find a list of all the poems read on this show, as well as earlier episodes that you might enjoy listening to. Our theme music is Philip Alberg's Going to the Sun, available on his CD, live from Montana at sweetgrassmusic.com. Thank you for listening to Poems for Company.